Welcome to the fourth quarter Executive Summit Virtual Series. My name is Dallas Keim. I'm the Senior Vice President of Retail Commercial Lending um, here at Farm Credit. Today, it's really a privilege for us to have Dr. Marcy Rossell. Dr. Marcy Rossell is a world-renowned economist and financial expert who electrifies audiences nationwide, speaking candidly on the nexus of economics, politics, culture, and the media. She honed her animated style, serving as the popular, lively chief economist for CNBC. I'm sure a lot of you have seen her there in the, in the past, um, where she became a household name and a must-watch source of financial news. The former co-host of the well-known pre-market morning news and talk show Squawk Box, Russell is revered for taking complex economic issues, often dull in the button-down business press and making them relevant to people's lives, families, and careers. So Marcy, um, welcome. I'm going to go off script here just a second, but I, I think is, is a way for to help you even connect with your audience even more as if you need any more introduction. But I, I know when we talked a couple of weeks ago, um, could you share your background a little bit? Because you're, you are a farm girl at heart, and I think that um, would be a good connector for our audience. Well, thank you, Dallas. I would actually love to. It's a delight to be here with you today. Um, I'm not just a farm girl on the inside. I'm actually a farm girl on the outside, too, um, in the sense that my dad and uh, both of my brothers are rice and soybean farmers down um, in the Arkansas Delta. So if anybody out there has ever duck hunted in Arkansas, you've probably gotten really, really close to um, where my family roots are, where um, I was born, um, and uh, where, where much of my family still lives today. And in fact, I was telling Dallas earlier that one of my dear aunts started her career in Hazen, Arkansas, um, at the Farm Bureau office there, and ended up moving up through the Department of Agriculture and uh, finished her career in DC at the Department of ag. So, um, you know, everybody in my family farms. Um, like I like I said, I did not come from a family of investment bankers. Absolutely not. They I mean, were farmers through and through. Um, and I still have a pretty big garden in my backyard. So I, I haven't ever gotten far away from the dirt, the truth be told. And you still live in rural America, right? I do, but I live in rural Michigan. So it's a little bit different than rural Arkansas. Um, very, very different. But I got to tell you, I live in the middle of blueberry country and peach orchards and apples. And, you know, it's just, it, it's lovely up here. So a little different than where I grew up, but definitely still in the country. All right. Well, are you ready to get started? Absolutely. Love well, certainly. About the economy. Come on now. All right. Certainly. We, I mean, we are glad to have you. This really is an honor. Um, so it's a, it's a privilege for me. So <clears throat> first question, um, could you start with giving us a quick overview of where the economy is right now? I will start by telling you that never in my career, because I've been doing this for quite some time, have I seen the economy shift gears so dramatically. Because if we think back to where we were globally 18 months ago, just 18 short months ago, we were in a situation where millions of people every single week were losing their jobs. Fast forward to today, we're now in a situation where everybody's talking about labor shortages and wages we just got a report today that said that wages in the last quarter 
grew 1.5% from one quarter to the next. That's the value of wages and benefits in the US. That is the fastest increase in wages and benefits recorded ever. So we've moved from a situation where record number of people are unemployed to a situation just 18 short months later where you're seeing record increases in the value of wages, salaries, and benefits. If you think about 18 months ago, the shipping industry globally, so container ships that move your product worldwide, um, that shipping industry in the face of the pandemic early on suspected that activity would decline rather than increase. And so they cut their capacity by 11% early in the pandemic. That, of course, has had reverberations as demand has snapped back so dramatically so that now today, global shipping volumes are actually 27% above where they were before the pandemic which of course has meant that the cost of moving a shipping container has gone from $2,000 to $10,000 currently. So we've seen a five-fold increase in the price of shipping. So again, moving from a situation where the global economy was essentially in free fall to a situation where now today we are experiencing record supply side constraints. If you think about what's happened um, to, you know, the stock market, we've gone from a situation where the stock market 18 months ago uh, had declined by 30%. Now we're actually up 32% from where we were prior to the pandemic. Energy markets, which are in a state of real turmoil right now, 18 months ago, the price of oil was negative. Do you remember that? Do you remember when oil prices went negative for a week or two? I can't even explain to you in some ways exactly what that meant, but basically people were having to pay to store oil because there was simply no demand for it. Now we're in a situation where the price of oil is bumping around $80 a barrel, which is a price we haven't seen since 2015 when the shale oil revolution drove prices down dramatically, we moved into a new era. Now, I want everybody to keep in mind and remember that back prior to 2015, oil prices had flirted in the $130 range. So if you're thinking $80 a barrel for oil is really, really expensive, that's still $50 a barrel less than its all-time high. But still, it's got everybody a little bit worried What's going to happen to my cost of production as we move into the next season, basically? So again, to sort of encapsulate, to sort of summarize what's happening right now, Dallas, we have moved from a situation where it was the demand side of the economy that was most heavily affected to fast forwarding 18 months later in a quick period of time to where now everyone is facing these severe supply side constraints. And it's kind of all anybody can talk about. And I personally have never seen it switch that quickly. And so you mentioned the whole container situation as a novice, but you know, we're reading, you said, you know, it's 10,000 now to get them, but they're sitting outside in our ports in LA, not getting unloaded. I, could you talk about that a little bit and why you think that is and when we'll get some relief from that? Well, it's funny. If you think about the way that the global supply chain works, 
And you go back to when I'm suspecting maybe you were in college and I was in college and business school. And this whole idea of just-in-time inventory, remember sort of the Japanese way of doing it where you cut out all the redundancies and you build a global supply chain that is completely cost-effective, but it's all just-in-time. And that worked beautifully for bringing massive amounts of efficiency to a globalized supply chain. Never, of course, anticipating something like a pandemic that would have rolling worldwide disruptions that could happen in any part of the supply chain at any given time. Now, that supply chain has worked fairly well because you would have isolated disruptions to it here and there, but they wouldn't stack up and roll on and continue to keep going. So early on in the pandemic, you'd have ports in China um, being closed down um, because of an outbreak of the virus, and that would have ramifications and slow things down. One of the other things that, that is sort of poorly understood but extremely important is that trade depends on goods going in both directions, right? And so containers come from China to the US and drop off all the stuff that I like to wear and we fill them up with grain and all the things that you guys make and send it back over. Well, many of the containers were coming over emptying goods to the American public. And by the way, something you've got to understand in all of this to make sense of it. In a normal recession, Incomes go down and wealth goes down. So people tend to get poor during a recession. And when they get poor, they demand less stuff. Well, this time around, people's incomes actually were stabilized by government support. In some cases, their income was even overcompensated for, so they made more money during the pandemic. Um, our wealth increased because the value of our stocks and the value of our houses all went up. So Americans are sitting around, we can't go to restaurants, we can't travel, we can't spend money on the service sector, but we can still shop on Amazon. And boy, didn't we. So we're soaking up goods from Asia at an even higher rate than we were prior to the pandemic. So all those containers are coming over, but they're not going back because demand from Asia is not there. So because they didn't have the ability to support incomes in the rest of the world the way that we did in the US, you get any kind of backup or disruption to US ports because people are calling in sick, people are demanding higher wages, you're getting issues on the labor side in the US, and it simply begins to snowball. But your question of when are we going to get relief? And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. I actually think it's gonna be a tough holiday season. I think you're gonna to continue to see headlines that are really ugly until January, because every year, the Chinese New Year happens and the Chinese basically take a four week vacation. And when they take that four week vacation, their factories stop, their ports stop moving goods out. I mean, literally the whole country stops. And I do think that when they stop, that's going to give a little bit of wiggle room in the U.S. to deal with the backlog of goods that are coming in. And I think that you're going to go a long way towards alleviating some of those problems when we get to the Chinese New Year. This could be a tough three months between now and then. So we've got headlines everywhere. They're talking about labor supply shortages. I mean, we in agriculture, we feel it <clears throat> broad based just as everybody else is too, right? 
Colin, I think summer calm is a great <clears throat> resignation time. So why do you think it's um, so hard to find talent right now? Well, I, everybody's calling it that great resignation, um, but I'm calling it the great realignment because I think something very, very different and poorly understood is going on. Um, like you said, ag is all has, has, it, has had trouble attracting labor and talent for a really long time. The problems that ag has been facing are primarily demographic. And they have been the product of slow geographic changes where people move out of rural America and have been drawn to cities. So that issue for rural America has been primarily demographic driven and it's been happening over a long, slow period of time. Um, but now the same pressures that ag has been under are now everywhere. And they have much less to do with um, the generous extended unemployment benefits um, than I think many of us originally thought. So initially, um, if you would have asked me a year ago, you know, what's going to be the effect of generous unemployment insurance, meaning you top off at the federal level, um, you extend it beyond the normal um, six months ability to collect unemployment benefits. So when you make unemployment benefits more generous, the economist in me says, well, of course, that's a disincentive to work, right? I mean, that's just common sense. And what I expected was that once you curtailed those extended benefits, that labor markets would loosen up and you'd see people sort of, you know, go back to work and fill all these jobs. And that is not what has happened at all. In fact, many states moved to cut federal unemployment insurance benefits back in June. And it hasn't alleviated the labor shortage issues um, really to any significant amount. So the evidence suggest that something larger is going on in labor markets than simply generous unemployment benefits, disincentivizing people to take a new job, right? So something bigger is going on. And I think it has to do with the very nature of this pandemic. You see, normally um, a recession starts somewhere in the economy, right? If you think about the great recession of 2008, 2009, that recession started in housing markets. There was a boom and a bust in housing prices. Uh, when housing prices declined, um, people started to um, default on their housing loans. So they go into foreclosure. This puts stress on the banking sector. We end up with a full-blown financial crisis and the effects of that spread throughout the globe. If you think back to those recessions of the 1970s, maybe some of you guys remember those. Um, those were good times for agriculture, but they were terrible times um, for the rest of the economy because energy prices were so very high. So it was a time when the dollar was really weak back in the 1970s because there was lots of inflation out there. The U.S. had gone off the gold standard. So weak, weak dollar um, meant that U.S. ag exports boomed. So those were real boom times for ag, but they were terrible for everyone else. So the 1970s had series of recessions um, that started in the oil sector, started with spikes in the price of oil that then moved out from there. So in a typical recession, what normally happens is you have a shock to the system. It moves out from there. And the last thing businesses do 
is lay off employees. There's this sort of um, misconception out there that, that businesses love to fire people, that they're just dying to fire people. And I am here to tell you, businesses are loath to fire people because no matter how terrible one employee may be, you know that if you get rid of them, there's a probability of some sort that someone you hire to replace him could actually be worse. You don't know what you're getting. At least this guy, you know what you're getting. You don't know what you're getting when you hire somebody new. It's costly to search. All these things, it's costly to train people. So even in the midst of a recession, businesses will cut all kinds of costs. They'll do whatever they can to avoid laying people off. The last thing businesses do is lay people off. And most people who are in an occupation in an industry that's being affected by a recession, they have lots of time to plan for it. They can kind of see it coming. They know they're gonna lose their job at some point. This recession was completely different. Instead of the job losses happening at the end of the recession, the job losses happened at the very beginning of the downturn and they were swift. So essentially what happened in March, April and May of 2020, you had millions of people whose connections to their job, their employer, and their geography were severed in a really short period of time. Now, I want everybody to hear me and take note of this because you cannot understand what is happening in labor markets today if you do not understand that people are essentially inert. They will stay with a job. They will stay with a boss. They will stay in a house, in a geography, in a town that they don't like simply because they don't like change. People are afraid of something different. They're not going to move on. They'll stay with a job they don't like. So just like employers will hold on to employees that they don't really care for, for fear of the alternative that they don't know, an employee will hold on to a job and stay somewhere simply because of fear of the unknown. What the pandemic did is that it came along and it cut rapidly connections to jobs, employers, and towns, where suddenly people who might've been on the margin and said, eh, I'm not really wild about this job, but I'll stay in it because it's the devil I know, are suddenly forced out in a very short period of time they're given plenty of income support in the form of PPP loans, in the form of um, you know, tax credits, in the form of direct benefits, in the form of unemployment benefits. So they have a little bit of cushion to sort of wait and see. And I got to tell you, I think this is the most crucial thing in understanding why labor markets are in such turmoil and talent is hard to find because you're in the process, not of a great resignation, but in, a great, in the midst of a great realignment. It's a reassignment of people to jobs, to employers, and to new towns. People who might've been in New York and they were only gonna stay another year or two anyway, basically throw in the towel and say, hey, I think I'll just go ahead and move to Atlanta instead. Um, maybe people who had been in the restaurant business for 10 years, maybe they graduated from high school in, or excuse me, in college in 2008. Remember all those millennials that graduated into the great recession? They graduate in 2008, they can't find a job 
you know, in political science or doing what they thought they were going to do. So they end up going into the restaurant business, the hospitality business. They stay there for 10 years. It wasn't where they ever intended to sort of land, but suddenly the pandemic comes along, severs their connection, throws them out of work for months. And they look and say, you know, I don't think I'm going back to that. I'm going to go do something else. And because the value of people's savings is so high, the value of their house is so high, the value of the stock market is so high, it's bought them some time. So even though the unemployment benefits were generous, they probably didn't help the situation. I don't think they're the primary culprit in explaining why labor markets and, 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 and businesses are having so much trouble finding workers. Dallas, I just don't think it's the entire story. It's much bigger and it's much more long-term. So with that, do you think they will, they'll settle in though more now that they've moved to a, diff, a spot and, and adjust to that or not? Do you think it'll continue to be um, changing? Well, I, I do think there are a couple of demographic factors um, that we need to keep in mind. I think it's going to get better um, in the next probably six months. I do think that. I think things will settle down. But businesses need to keep in mind that the pandemic collided with a long-term demographic trend that's, that's not well explained. And it's very similar to what's happening basically in rural America. In rural America, you've got farmers who are retiring and there's no young people to take their place, right? I mean, secession is an issue I'm guessing for lots of folks that you deal with and, and who are out there, who am I going to turn my business over to because my kids don't want to do it, right? This is, this, is, this is the issue, and it used to be on farms, right, that um, if you had five kids or six kids, one of your kids would take over the business, but chances are you don't have five or six kids. You got two kids. Maybe one of them is a lawyer and the other one's a doctor. Hope so, anyway. Um, so basically... Farm families have been getting smaller. And so people are aging out of the business and there's nobody to take their place. That dynamic is happening overall in the U.S. economy as well. During the pandemic, there were 1.3 million excess retirements. That means more retirements happened over the pandemic than would normally be expected. Every year, somebody retires, right? We know how many people retire. But over the pandemic, people retired in larger numbers. And I think it's because, again, if you were on the edge of retirement, you basically go, I don't want to do this Zoom thing. This is no way, you know, I don't want to have to learn all this, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had to learn a lot in the last 18 months. I've had to learn how to look good from the armpit up right? We've had to learn how to look good in this little bitty screen. You know, you've had to learn how to do that fuzzy thing from behind so nobody can see your cat. I mean, we've had to do all that kind of stuff. Well, that, that's learning. And if you're getting to the end of your career, you're like, I don't want to make this investment. I'm going to throw in the towel, right? I'm glad you didn't, right? But I bet a lot of people did. And the value of your house has gone up and the value of your 401k has gone up. So you're like, hey, I got more money than I thought I was going to have. I'm going to retire. So you got people retiring on the one end. But I think what's more concerning and what people don't understand is that every year the number of 18-year-olds goes down. That in this country, because family sizes are getting smaller, um, we've gone from having five kids to three kids to four kids, right? So every year the number of families, you know, the number of kids gets smaller. So if you look 10 years ago, there were 4.8 million 18-year-olds 10 years ago. 
So every year kids turn 18, a group of kids turns 18. And it's at that point that they become sort of, I would say fully eligible for the workforce. Some go to college, but some go to work, right? So 10 years ago, when the, at the height of the millennial boom, there were 4.8 million 18 year olds. Currently, there are 4.4 million 18 year olds. And that is true every single year. So the number of young people every single year is 400,000 less than it was 10 years ago. So you're not adding to the labor force, the young people, you're not adding to them every single year the way you were 10 years ago. And honestly, if you want to talk about real labor issues, wait 18 years when there's basically no pandemic babies. That one of the things everybody thought was, oh, there's going to be a baby boom. It's like, actually, no. The number of babies born in 2020 was 300,000 fewer than what you would have expected. Um, so that's going to, that rolls forward in 18 years from now, the labor crunch is going to be even worse. Interesting. I, I don't, I don't know if we've been, if this is a roaring twenties we've been through or exactly <laughs> what it is, but, um, the stock market, you touched on that a little bit earlier. And, uh, do you think these high stock prices stay where they're at? Do they worry you? Um, you know, I got to say, first of all, I'm going to put my, my, my worry answer into perspective. It did not surprise me at all to see stock prices decline 30% in March, April, and May of 2020. That was totally expected. That didn't shock me at all um, because I've seen this happen before. I saw stock prices decline during the Asia crisis. I saw stock prices decline after September 11th. I saw stock prices decline 40% in, after the financial crisis of 08, 09. So it doesn't surprise me when stock prices decline dramatically because stock prices are volatile and they respond to a shock to the system. September 11th was a shock. The financial crisis was a shock and certainly the pandemic was a shock. So when a shock like that comes along, stock prices are going to go down 30%. That doesn't surprise me. What does surprise me is how quickly they recovered. Um, and we can now see sort of looking back that the stock market last summer, a year ago, bottomed out. And then it began to increase dramatically so that currently stock prices today are above what they were prior to the pandemic. I mean, in some ways, the stock market is saying the pandemic was good for the economy, which is not true. But what is true is the pandemic was actually pretty good for the top five businesses in the S&P 500. It was great for Amazon. It was great for Alphabet, which owns Google. It was great for Microsoft. It was great for Apple because we all had to go out and have new technologies to sort of do all this. I need a new computer um, to, you know, do all these things that I wasn't doing before. Zoom mama meetings instead of doing them in person. Um, and it was great for Facebook, which has renamed itself Meta. Mm, I know you've heard that news. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not so sure, Facebook, you're making the point you think you are. Um, but anyway, so the biggest firms in the market 
actually benefited from this tech acceleration that was brought on by the pandemic. And so that's a real development. That's not speculation. Now, do I expect stock prices to go up as much next year as they did this year? Probably not. And could you have a correction of 10%? That happens all the time, my friends. We forget about it, but it does. That doesn't mean, though, that you shouldn't invest in stocks. Your decision to invest in the stock market should always depend on where you are in the life cycle. It should have nothing to do with where you think stock prices are headed. So they're high. Um, Something else that's high is the housing market, right? And you're talking about there's fewer younger people going to be buying houses, maybe, but looks to me like, I mean, so I guess I'm wondering where that plays in. And is that a sign of inflation? People ask me all the time, do I think the housing market's in a boom? Because we all remember 2008, 2009, and certainly last year in the middle of the pandemic, house prices were up in the U.S. almost 20%. So a 20% increase in home prices in a single year is definitely something that under that normally would make me look and go, ooh, that doesn't look right. That looks a lot like 2005, 2006 when home prices were at their peak. Um, there's something very different though happening right now that's different than a normal housing bubble. Housing bubbles, you have to have two things to have a bubble. You got to have a lot of leverage, meaning you've got to have people who are, you got to have weak lending standards and people who are heavily leveraged. And that's not what's happening right now. In fact, lending standards by banks are really, really high. Um, They've stayed high um, because banks still remember 2008, 2009, even if millennials don't. Um, Banks remember, so banks, nobody's writing no doc loans the way that they were back in 2005 and 2006. Um, Lending standards are high. And, you know, the level of leverage around housing um, is lower than what it was in 2005, 2006. In fact, people are buying homes with cash. They're buying homes with cash and they're buying them not expecting the price to go up in the future. They're buying them because they need a different way to live, which is the second condition. A bubble, bubble buying is people buying something not because they need it or want it, but because they think the price is going to go up, which by the definition is, is the only reason people are buying crypto coins right now, unless you're in the you know kidnapping and ransom business. That's the only, those are the only people that need crypto coins, right? Um, the only reason to buy a cryptocurrency if you're not part of a black market economy is you're just gambling on the price going up. And so that's my little spiel on on cryptocurrencies. But that's not why people are buying houses right now. They are buying homes because the changes in the way that we live, work, and play are permanent. That the pandemic has permanently changed our needs around how we're going to live, work, and play. So even if people go back to the office, They're still going to do a lot of this remote working and you're going to need a Zoom room. You're going to need a studio in your house like I have right now so that when I'm doing my video calls and things, you know, it looks nice. 
Well, that requires more space. I got to have room for all this stuff. Um, I also have to have room for a Peloton bike because I need to be able to work out remotely, right? So I got to have more room for a gym over here. Um, I need more room in my kitchen um, because now I'm actually going to cook in my kitchen, um, maybe more than I did before because people are still probably never going to eat out and travel and go to restaurants to the degree that they did prior to the pandemic. Um, and so all of this means that people need more space and they need more high quality space. And even if there are fewer 18 year olds every single year, people are not actually entering the housing market until they're in their thirties. So right now you've got all those millennials who were 18, 12 years ago, who are all 30 now, they're entering their prime decade of buying homes. So you've got tons of buyers. The pandemic severed their connection to cities. They're all moving to the suburbs at once. They're all having families at once. And that's what's putting pressure on prices. And builders are retiring. So the number of builders and the number of people in the construction sector um, declines every year. You don't have the immigration, so you don't have the roofers, you don't have the plumbers, you don't have the builders, and the people who are general contractors, the average age of them every year goes up and up and up, and they're all, they're all retiring. So fewer houses, more demand, that's a recipe for strong home prices. I got some questions coming in here too about you know, and inflation in particular, and where that driver is, and are they going to run out of cash because of that? Yeah, and then yeah. maybe maybe with that, um, how what you think of interest rates as it aligns with inflation? Well, one of the important things to understand about inflation is how much of it is temporary and how much of it is permanent, because that's a real question for policymakers when they look and say, is it appropriate for us to raise interest rates and how much and how soon should we do that? Um, they're, they're sort of trying to figure out, is the inflation permanent? Or is it just pandemic related disruptions to individual markets that really aren't relevant for monetary policy? Um, those temporary disruptions, I call those toilet paper markets. Because if you think about uh, toilet paper 18 months ago, early on in the pandemic, we couldn't get it. It was in short supply. The prices were high. I bet some of you bought that $60 toilet paper on Amazon that came to your house um, and, and, and you could have written a letter on it. Um, it was so, so stiff, right? So we were all in a panic to get toilet paper 18 months ago. It was hand sanitizer. Remember that guy trying to sell hand sanitizer for $20 online and everybody thought he was just the most terrible thing ever. He was the Bernie Madoff of the pandemic. Um, so now everything is shifted to where the price of lumber goes up because all of a sudden we all wanna build patios. Um, the price of appliances goes up because everybody has tons of savings. They're not traveling the way they were before. So they wanna redo their houses and they wanna, you know, new washer dryer, new this, new that. Um, all of that is temporary. Um, and temporary meaning it's gonna be, sort of you're gonna see flare ups in different markets, pandemic related over the next year those toilet paper markets don't matter so much. And the way that you can sort of tease out and the thing that the Federal Reserve will be looking at is something called the trimmed mean rate of inflation. The trimmed mean, like trim, like trim your beard, trim your mustache, trim, trim your hair, um, trimmed, 
mean rate of inflation. And this was something that was developed at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, right, where I used to work. Um, and that trimmed mean rate of inflation, what it does is it gets rid of the outliers. So typically, when you see a spike in inflation, it's only one thing driving it, just like toilet paper, right? It was the only thing that, the, and hand sanitizer, that was the only thing anybody wanted back early in the pandemic. Well, imagine if the Federal Reserve had, had, had tightened monetary policy because they said, look at that toilet paper inflation. We got to do something about that. No, you get rid of the outliers. You trim the mean, right? So you trim the highest rates of inflation, things like used cars. If you look at the inflation rate over the last year, the increase in inflation, a third of the increase in inflation is being driven by one market, used cars. So they trim off the highest rate of inflation and the lowest rate of inflation. So if you got the price for one thing tumbling, you don't want to make that like say technology, right? Because technology prices tend to go down quality adjusted every single year. So if you adjust for that and get rid of the highest and the lowest, you get something called the trim mean rate of inflation. And even though the headline rate of inflation in the US right now is over 5%, when you get rid of the top category and the low, lowest category, the inflation rate in the US, the trimmed mean rate of inflation is 2%. That's it. So a lot of the inflation headlines are extremely misleading. They make wonderful news stories. When you talk about how the price of lumber is up 400%, um, it makes for a great news story, but it doesn't tell you what's really happening in the broader economy. Um, and so if you look at sort of broad inflation, it's really running only about 2% when you get rid of that. So the Federal Reserve knows that, which means they will be in no hurry to raise rates. Now, I do think that you will see them draw down quantitative easing. They're going to do that because truthfully, it makes no sense for them to be purchasing mortgage-backed securities when the housing market is roaring. They really need to get out of that market, and they know that. So I think that they will start to roll that back. And it'll be quite some time though, before they take that next step and start to raise rates. Because I think that most of this inflation is temporary. It's not permanent. I'm circling back here just a bit because I'm watching some of the questions come in. When we're talking about the whole labor um, situation and how do we fix that? Three questions in particular here now. What's the outlook around immigration and are, are there any chance we're going to see some reform, some immigration reform? Well, I mean, I think you, you sort of, because immigration is such a hot political issue, um, what I typically do is walk you right up to the point where you can make your own conclusion about the solution to our labor market issues. Um, even if we started having more children in the United States of America, if we could do something to make people want to have more babies, um, it would take 18 years for that to have any effect on labor markets whatsoever. And in the meantime, if women had more children, they would actually be less likely to participate um, in labor markets. So any policy that sort of attempts to make people have more children will actually curtail labor force participation by women in the short run. So you can't do it um, naturally, organically. You got to get the people from somewhere else. Um, and I find it absolutely mind boggling, mind boggling that you can have 
a news story about labor shortages run right next to a news story about the dangers of immigration. I simply don't understand it. You can't have one. You got to got to pick one one thing to worry about. You're either worried about the labor shortage or you're worried about immigration. But one of those things is the solution to the problem. It's the only solution. Now you can say that comes with all sorts of cultural issues and that's a different ball of wax. And it would require um, efforts to assimilate people. Um, but that's what we've been doing in America for a really long time. Like we've got 150 years of experience assimilating immigrants. So make it work, make it work. Um, in my mind, the simplest solution is to have really generous, well-documented and regulated entrance into the labor force in this country and tax people a whole bunch once they get here. Like, stop taxing me and let them in and tax them. I mean, it solves so many problems and it just seems so obvious. And Dallas, I really can't figure out why it isn't. I, I'm perplexed. I've been perplexed for decades around this. Um, as we watch the population of the US shrink and the number of children we have goes down every single year. And there's people who are like walking through some jungle trying to get here. Like I want them working for me. Like my kids couldn't walk through a jungle. I hadn't met anybody applying for a job that actually walked through a jungle to get here. Like I want that guy on my team. I'll take him. I think a lot of us are a little worried about getting taxed in the near future, right? Um, so with that, I'm, I'm going to more broader though. Thoughts on the national debt and long-term implications of, of all of this? You know, as long as interest rates stay low, as long as you can service your debt, as long as your economy is growing faster than the interest rate that you pay on your debt, the level of debt is sustainable. I mean, that's just really the bottom line. Until interest rates increase to the point where we are growing slower than the rate of interest, right? So once interest rates on our debt on average increase above 3%, um, cause you got the rate of inflation in there too. So once you, your real rate of interest surpasses your growth rate, then you're gonna have to do something about it. But I gotta tell you that hasn't happened since the late 1990s. Is it possible to balance the budget in the United States of America? Absolutely. We're the richest country in the world. I don't care what you tell me about China being sort of surpassing the US um, in terms of the size of its economy. N nobody's trying to move there. They're all trying to move here. Why? Because it's the richest country in the world. That's where I'd wanna go. So of course, we're the richest country. Can rich people pay their debts? Can they pay their bills if they want to? Absolutely. But sometimes they choose not to. And that's basically what we're doing in the US. In the late 1990s, remember, we had a balanced budget in 97, 98, and 99. And the only reason the budget was balanced is because long-term interest rates were bumping up against 7%, and it was getting really expensive to service that debt. So rising interest rates will put pressure on politicians to basically balance the budget. But until that happens, I see no political will to do it whatsoever. Um, now, in terms of what's the outlook for sort of fiscal policy, um, 
I want everybody to, to really understand that 2020 was a year of unprecedented fiscal intervention, unprecedented. 25% of GDP um, in terms of the physical, physical response to the pandemic. So last year you had this severe, like incredible rush of money into the economy. 2022 is going to be a year when there's a fraction of that stimulus in the economy. So you're going to have severe fiscal tightening in 2022. It's not going to feel that way. The narrative is always going to be, look at how much money the government spends. But in absolute terms and in relative terms, government's going to spend a lot less money next year um, than they are this year. Um, so you know, the outlook for tax policy. I know a lot of people are worried about their taxes really going up, but I've been watching um, the, the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill kind of politically move their way sort of through the system. And it all started out where they were talking about, you know, $3.5 trillion and $4 trillion in spending. Has everybody noticed how the numbers just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller? Um, and so I, I'm not going to lose any sleep over my future tax rate until I actually see what comes out of that bill at the end of the day. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near the size um, that, that people anticipated. You know, there's a lot of people on this call that are really sensitive to that, whether it's capital gains, whether it's estate tax issues, um, 1031 exchanges, those kind of things. I don't know if you want to touch on any of that briefly, <clears throat> have any insight into that, but. Well, yeah, you know, again, I think it's just, um, it, it's true. There were, that would be a, a powerful rewriting of the tax code. And I don't really see that happening. I think there's, you know, enough um, disarray on the side of, uh, on the democratic side of the aisle, I think there's so much variability in what everybody wants, as opposed to, if you think back to 2017, the last time you had a big change in the tax code, right? Republicans were all on board with, you know, let's lower the corporate tax rate and lower the highest marginal rates. Um, so it was easy to get that done because there wasn't a lot of, um, um, derision on that side of the aisle. This time around, you know, Democrats are all over the map around what they're willing to accept and what they want to do. And so that's going to require a tremendous amount of compromise. And compromise typically means that the package isn't nearly as big or as invasive or, in, or, or um, invasive is not the right word, but as um, uh, different, basically. Um, you know, you're not going to get the upheaval that everybody was expecting, I think, even three months ago. I think it's going to get way whittled down and it's going to be around the edges. You know, I don't, I just don't anticipate big changes. So here's some, we're going to go on the peripheral here a little bit. How about, um, uh, how about electric cars? Huh, how about, you know, it's funny. We were talking at my house just this morning about electric cars. Um, I have kind of scratched my head and been absolutely, you know, flummoxed by the fact that um, Tesla, Elon Musk Tesla, is actually the, the market cap of Tesla is higher than the market cap of all three of the legacy automobile producers in the United States combined. So if, the, if you just are looking at the stock market for where is the world headed, 
I mean, if you're just, if you really do believe that the stock market, it has all the information that's out there and known and possible contained in stock prices, the stock market is telling you that we are all going to be driving electric cars at some point in the very near future. That that is the direction that the world is going. So, um, and I don't have any, I don't have any other knowledge other than that. Um, I'm an economist, so I all, I know almost nothing about technology. I barely know how to use this computer that I'm using right now. Um, but I understand the stock market really, really well. And I've been watching it for decades. And every once in a while, it's wrong. But overall, in general, over long periods of time, it tends to be right. And the stock market was telling me back in the summer of last year that the economy was going to come roaring back. And honestly, I kind of didn't believe it. I thought there's just no way. There's no vaccine. Remember summer of 2020, there's no vaccine. We're all still hiding in our houses. There's shutdowns everywhere. The winter's going to be terrible. And the stock market comes roaring back. And I'm looking and going, I don't believe it. Something weird's happening here. The stock market was right. And I was too pessimistic. And so now I'm looking and going, I don't actually understand electric vehicles one bit, but the stock market is telling me that that's what we're all going to drive. So I got to go with that because that tends to be far righter, more correct um, than, than anything I'm going to come up with, you know, reading the Atlantic Monthly or something. So with that, is Bitcoin, is that going to be our currency then in the no. future? No, no. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little goofy too. No, it's a little goofy too. Let me let me say this. The technology behind Bitcoin, so blockchain technology that allows for an indelible record of transactions um, that kind of can go on forever, that doesn't require paper. That technology will revolutionize the financial sector, the property sector, it allows you, particularly in places that don't have great property rights and great title, um, all that, that, that blockchain technology will do a world of good in those instances. But in order for a Bitcoin or any kind of cryptocurrency to replace the US dollar, um, it has to be more stable, easier to use, hold its value better than the U.S. dollar. So I totally understand why if you live in Venezuela, you might want to use a Bitcoin. But I bet if a Venezuelan was given the opportunity to use dollars instead of Bitcoin, I bet they would go with dollars. Because you see, one of the things Bitcoin will do is discipline the Federal Reserve not to let inflation get out of control. So just the threat of another currency is enough, but I don't ever see Bitcoin, not in my lifetime, surpassing the US dollar um, in terms of being uh, the global currency. It, it's a, I mean, if I was gonna go with an alternative to the dollar, I'd go with the Euro or the yen, not Bitcoin, which can be worth 50,000 one week and 30,000 the next. That's not a viable currency. And for it to sort of smooth itself out, um, that's going to take a far greater change um, in the way the world works than, than, than is likely to happen in my short lifetime. 
Yeah, it's interesting. A couple of questions that are coming in here, though, specifically is around China, I think. Oh, you, sure. um, how about some just broad um, comments or a little discussion around that? Um, I think that China has been, th that the ever grand um, issues in China are going to dog them for years. And essentially, I have, I have, I have contended for a really long time that China will get old before it gets rich. I actually believe China will get old before it gets rich. And their demographic cliff that they put themselves on with a one-child policy decades ago means that they will, they, they actually engineered a situation where they will have people retiring with no workers coming behind them. So for every Two parents that are retiring, you have one kid to support them. And they did that across their entire economy. So for all of these sort of economic focus on China, um, and I do believe that you know they, they are a counterweight to the US globally, they are still our workshop. You know, we produce the real wealth, the real ideas and the ingenuity. Um, still do that to this very day. And then we take the ideas and we send them to China and they actually make the stuff because they have three times the people that we do. Um, so that relationship, I actually expect that to sort of continue to be sort of that symbiotic economic relationship to continue for decades. Um, but at some point their labor surplus um, will become the severest labor shortage the world has ever seen. And it's pretty predictable. I mean, it happens in just a couple of decades. And so the idea that they could one day supplant the U.S. economically is, is, is you know, it just doesn't hold up. They have the same problems that the Soviet Union had. And everybody predicted that the Soviet Union would surpass the U.S. economically, and they never did. Now, can they cause a lot of political upheaval between now and then? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, many times that kind of political upheaval is a distraction from the real problems that they have. I think the next three to four years, um, the biggest challenge politically on the international scene will be the South China Sea and the tensions between China and Taiwan. That when countries have internal issues, particularly um, um, autocratic places like Russia and China, um, when they have internal issues, they tend to saber rattle and cause trouble in their neighborhood. So Russia moves into Crimea and China will continue to threaten Taiwan. Um, and that, that I think is going to be far more important than the, than the economic issues between our countries. So I mean, we have kind of a moat around us to kind of protect us from all of that. Are we going to be removed from that, you think, in the future? And <sighs> You know, um, I think our moat around us keeps us removed from that kind of genuine physical threat like Taiwan. Um, but at the same time, the threat today, it's from cyber terrorism. Um, it's not, it's no longer, the, the land war doesn't concern me. Um, what really concerns me is the internet war. Um, that, that those, I think, are, are the real political issues um, that, that we have to be on top of, you know, rather than being concerned about, you know, what, what happens on the land, because things really have changed from that perspective. 
Okay, we've got, uh, I've got a couple more here and, and I'm circling back to our quick discussion on electric cars. You said you don't know anything about, but I don't necessarily believe that. But, but the question is, but impact of electric cars in the fuel industry and how, how are we gonna produce enough electricity in the places where it's really, where it's gonna be needed? You know, that was the other thing that we were talking about this morning. So I read this remarkable little, you know, anecdote about Denmark. And Denmark has enough wind power generation to power their entire country. Except, of course, when the wind doesn't blow, right? So what does Denmark do when the wind doesn't blow? Well, they've come up with uh, a deal with, I believe it's Sweden, right? I think it's Sweden, one of their neighbors that has plenty of um, dam powered electricity. And so essentially Denmark produces enough wind powered electricity for both countries when the wind is blowing. And then when the wind stops blowing, the flow of electricity comes the other direction from the hydro um, electrically produced, right? So you can tell I'm getting a little bit outside of my wheelhouse when I start talking about the technology around electricity. One is wind, one is water, right? So. I think that the future of a renewable driven system, which is where the world is headed, is going to require much more of those kinds of um, relationships and symbiotic um, solutions to providing a constant source of power um, because sometimes the wind doesn't blow and sometimes the sun doesn't shine. But I got to tell you, Dallas, and this is something I will go to my grave saying, and I want to leave you with this. I'm a believer in human ingenuity. We can cause a lot of problems, but we can fix them too. And so I cannot lose faith in our ability to power the earth in a clean way. I don't have any politics around it. I just think it's an interesting problem for human beings to get their mind around. And when there are smart people out there who can solve this problem, um, and I really believe, just like I, I really believe that the deficit can be balanced if you have the will to do it, you can power the world cleanly. Um, we're really, I have that much faith in human ingenuity. I believe it can be done and I believe it will be done. So you're saying there's an opportunity, you think? Oh, yeah, always, always. <laughs> well, again, it goes without saying, but thank you. You did an awesome job. And Marcy, thank you. Thank you.